This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome back to the UCSB Distinguished Speaker Series. Tonight we've got a fellow, very interesting, right? So it's not Facebook, it's not Google, it's not LinkedIn. It's a nonprofit, right? And a lot of times when we think of organizations, we think of innovation, we think of entrepreneurship, you don't think of nonprofits. How many nonprofit organizations do you think there are in the world today? Take a guess. Wild guess. A swag. 10,000. 10, okay, do I have prices right here? 150,000. 150,000. What else? 300,000. 500,000. Okay, if this were the price is right, a million would win. It's 10 million, right? There's 10 million NGOs in the world, right? So when you're the dude who runs a nonprofit that gets recognized by Forbes magazine, by Fast Company, it's ranked number one by Charity Navigator. And if you're ever going to open up your checkbook or whip out your credit card to give money, always go to Charity Navigator, right? They'll tell you where the companies are spending their money, right? Are they top-heavy? Are they spending it on salary? How much of your 100 bucks that you give them actually goes out to the beneficiaries, right? Direct relief has been ranked 99% efficient, right? So essentially, I mean, there's a lot of math involved, but that means for every 100 bucks you give them, they're giving out 99 bucks. So this is real deal stuff. Thomas Tig, like Tiger, but Tig, came into the organization, completely transformed it. So he's going to talk to us tonight about the entrepreneurial, innovative side of running a nonprofit. Let's give it up for Thomas Tig. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for, um, for coming out. Given the competition with the weather, like you get extra brownie points if it's 80 degrees and you're not at the beach. Um, so I appreciate that very much. Um, and a chance to talk to you a little bit about direct relief and some of the issues that, that we confront um, as a nonprofit trying to do things um, in the world for people typically who can't afford to attract the competition and services and goods from straight businesses because they're poor. So um, we'll have plenty of time to take some questions, but I'll just roll you through some of the history and what the mission is, what Direct Relief is about, and how we look at things. So the mission is basically to try to uh, improve the health and lives of people affected by uh, living in poverty and those affected by uh, disasters. Um, it's sort of living in crisis, people who are vulnerable. And we do that by mobilizing and providing, at no charge, the essential resources that they need for their health. Pretty straightforward. Mission statements are hard. That's kind of wordy, but basically um, that's what we do. We've been around since 1948 and uh, kind of through a lot of different iterations, but basically recognizing um, in response to the fact that People who are poor um, often can't buy the things that they need. And by the same token, those living in poor areas don't attract the investment in the infrastructure to deliver the things that they need, which is why often governments do that, religious institutions do that. And NGOs are a relatively recent uh, innovation in the history of the world, right? Um, But that's why they exist, to do things that aren't necessarily being done by governments but are important to do, aren't really powerful as a business um, because you can't make a lot of money doing them, 
but they're worth doing anyway. So we've been doing that since uh, uh, 1948, from the black and white era to the color era. So I think our founders, the, um, the gentleman on the left, the, the taller, two, uh, taller of the two is the man, William Zimden, who was kind of a high net worth uh, entrepreneur, businessman from Estonia. And he and his colleague, Dennis Karzag, basically fled the Nazis um, when they started appropriating businesses in Europe in the 40s, and they ended up in Santa Barbara. And so the, the history was basically these uh, war immigrant refugee businessmen who wound up in Santa Barbara using their own money to help people that they knew personally in post-war Europe. And it evolved into a public charity when Mr. Zimden died in the early 1950s, but kept really that mindset of an immigrant um, and a businessman to, who was looking at how he was spending his own money at the time purely to benefit people on a humanitarian basis. And some of the things that they came up with at the time have proven to be very important, sort of cutting edge at the time, and uh, we still embrace many of the same philosophies today. Um, you know, a lot has changed. Um, many things haven't. I think actually everything's changed um, in society and in business and in international relations with technology. It's been a profound um, seven decades of change, as you know. Um, and many things haven't. I think the, the human constants of those who just are born into circumstances that they didn't choose um, but put them at such a disadvantage in so many ways. And I think the ongoing effort of direct relief is to keep up with the times that we're in and enhance the work, but to try to address these long, vexing questions of um, there still remains humanitarian need in the world. It's quite severe. And how we can, as Direct Relief and other nonprofit organizations, dig in using some of the tools and entrepreneurial skills that are so finely honed these days and apply them for the types of things that we're working on. Um, we have our global headquarters right on the other side of the airport, for the, right adjacent to the Glita train station. It's been there about 25 years. And if you come over there, it will look a lot like Costco. We had these an old photograph when, um, among other things, Direct Relief started about 40 or 50 years ago. It was licensed to provide prescription medications as a pharmacy distributor. Had a lot of volunteers. I think there, there's a couple of men in there. The women were doing all the, the work at the time in the last millennium, it appears. But um, I think it, what the evolution is, it's largely the same model. It's functionally a distribution center, providing medical materiel for people who can't afford it. And um, that's what we still do. It's, you're more than welcome to come over and see how we work. Um, yeah, right, right next to the Glita uh, train station. Some of the things we do, we're a stuff-providing organizations. I mean, there's all sorts. There's 1.4 million nonprofit organizations in the United States. I think ten, Ken's comment about 10 million globally. There's 1.4 in the United States, and they range. They cover the waterfront of issues from environment to animal welfare, pure advocacy for almost every cause you can imagine, research, service delivery, product development. There's some very good ones here in Santa Barbara, four or five hundred. A very good one that was started, I think, by people involved with, um, with this program, Unite to Light, which has a really powerful LED reading light that Direct Relief actually uses, uh, not for reading, we provide it to midwives um, who are often faced in you know, developing countries with delivering a baby at night. So 
it's nice to have light when you're doing that. But one of the things that we've done is develop certain products or packages for things that uh, make sense to the people that we're serving. We're typically not involved with product development, but certain things um, like the prenatal vitamins on the left-hand side, you know, there's a standard globally for what um, pregnant women and women who are nursing need. In the way of micronutrients, the World Health Organization and UNICEF developed that. We could never get those donated. We like to work with manufacturers of stuff and encourage them to make their stuff uh, that's needed by people who can't afford it available through us. Um, Certain things like the prenatal vitamins, we didn't have a lot of success, so we started to just have them uh, manufactured on our own. There's a lot of people who are evacuated or homeless, and I think among the other things they need are just basic um, items when you find yourself in a shelter or something. So we work to develop a standard um, for what is kind of an essential package of basic hygiene items that people need. For midwives, um, you know, it's really a consequential thing to have someone attend your birth. All the, about 99% of the, the maternal deaths occur outside of the United States, and almost all of them are preventable. And one of the single greatest interventions that has been found to, to work to reduce the both maternal and infant death is to have a birth attended by a skilled person. So we worked with midwives um, around the world, and there's such a heavy investment in training uh, midwives. And what we realized uh, as a stuff-providing organization is that many of the midwives were being trained and just were not working because for lack of basic tools that they needed to perform their jobs. You've all heard the, the saying, you know, if you give a person a fish, they will eat today. Um, if you teach a person to fish, they'll not go hungry. It's a nice saying, and it's not true. Knowing how to fish doesn't actually get you a fish. You need kind of a pole or a boat or a net or a fishing pole or something. So I think there's a complementary aspect to the investment in the human resource of training midwives. And we worked for a couple of years with the International Confederation of uh, Midwives to develop a global standard that we provide at no charge to women working in developing countries. By the same token, we've developed um, an emergency medical pack for volunteer medical responders in California. There, There wasn't a standard. We thought it was a good idea. It's actually a mandate from the federal government after September 11th. So we worked here with the Medical Reserve Corps and Doctors Without Walls here in Santa Barbara to develop a prototype, what should a standard be for people who volunteer their services, health professionals. That's now the state of California's standard for the Medical Reserve Corps members. And on and on, there are certain things um, that we've seen repeatedly in hurricane regions of the United States. Um, There's a lot of things that uh, can go wrong when you're evacuated and you lose your home. Directly focuses on the health dimension of it, which is always a concern. And we developed um, something that is now pre-positioned before hurricane season throughout the United States, as well as um, developed a module uh, for surgeons to repair this awful birth uh, injury that affects basically only women in poor countries called obstetric fistula, which is prolonged labor where the baby is not delivered and the pressure of the baby's skull typically in the pelvic area causes a woman to um, not deliver the baby safely child typically dies and the woman is left with um, dead tissue and leakage of feces and urine and is ostracized like a modern-day leper. It's about the worst thing that can happen. And as a humanitarian organization, we thought, what can we do to help? And one of the things was to identify 
with technology that I'll show you a little bit later, where the cases are, where the surgeons who are willing to devote their time and are trained to help repair these, um, these women's injuries and develop a standard for um, what is needed in the way of su- surgical supplies to help defray the cost. So those are some of the things that we do kind of in the way of product development that's grown out of a lot of the input that we've had uh, over the last 67 years. You know, there's a lot of things that are worth doing that aren't great business ideas, you know. As you know, I think uh, for those of you at UCSB, um, it's deeply important to help a kid with severe autism. It's not a great business case because they're poor. Kids don't have any money. You do certain things for other reasons that aren't business reasons. You know, there's, when you do them, you want to do it in as business-like way as you can, um, having value for money, doing it in a targeted, efficient way. But I think the basic reason that nonprofit organizations exist is because there are a lot of things that are worth doing that just aren't good businesses. They're not prof- inherently profitable. You do them for other reasons. There can be a bad business case and a very good human case, and I think that's what Direct Relief recognizes every day, that there are people who, through no fault of their own, I think just are living in a very poor area uh, or are born into poverty or thrust by events or circumstances or tragedy or disasters into a very vulnerable situation. You know, as uh, Dr. Sterling said, I've been doing this for 16 years. I worked at the Peace Corps before as a chief operating officer and chief of staff. And worked a lot in 70 countries and been around and worked with a lot of people who are poor. And the one thing I've never found is someone whose aspiration for themselves or their children is to be a recipient of charity. No one's born with that aspiration. Um, Many need it. It exists for a reason. But I think sometimes there's um, almost a perception that comes on. is like, if you're poor, maybe you're a little bit lazy. Maybe you didn't work hard enough. Maybe you didn't try hard enough. Um, maybe you're going to become dependent. I've just never found that to be true. Most people that we work with work very hard. Uh, they have all sorts of obstacles for their health, um, their lives, uh, earning income in a poor area where there's not a lot of infrastructure. Um, but it's not something that anyone aspires to be, and it's not why you know, we would love it if there were no need for it at all. There are very few places where if you believe in that businesses are ultimately the solution to most social problems, and I think there's a lot of truth in that, there's very few cases where it solved every problem. If you believe that governments you know, should actually be the ones that make sure that no one falls through the crack, depending on what you believe, those are kind of the political issues, right? And political parties have different views on those things. But... Um, I've never seen the reason nonprofits exist is basically there are very few examples where either governments or businesses unto themselves cover all the things that are worth doing. And that's why you have organizations like Direct Relief. And we just focus on the humanitarian health issues. Um, one of the interesting things that um, is vexing, I think, in the nonprofit world is, you know, how do you measure it? And how does a person a member of the public, gauge its value. You know, we rely on contributions of people who give us their money, that they totally voluntary. We don't receive government funding. And one of the things that, you know, that, that struck me is that, you know, the pricing of coffee, 
sort of a, a fine institution like Starbucks. Maybe it's $5. Some people think it's outrageously expensive. Other people obviously think they take their money to Starbucks and they buy a cup of coffee. And the cool thing about business in the free marketplace and capitalism is they get to decide if they get $5 worth of value by drinking it. If they don't, either the price is going to get lowered or something's going to get changed, the business pressure is going to force some change. Right? The buyer is the consumer. Um, the the challenge in nonprofits, and I think it's what's led to a lot of skepticism, um, properly so, is that in a nonprofit, the person who's doing the buying, the donor, isn't able to tell whether they got $5 worth of value by giving it to me. So there's a disconnect often between the buyer, the consumer of the goods or services, is the person on the other side, the midwife, Right? So into that void, it's very difficult for someone to assess, I gave you $5, did $5 of value, um, was it received by the, the person for whose benefit the $5 was given, and you don't know. So I think a lot of you rely on what the nonprofit tells you, and they're, we're kind of conflicted, right? You got $10 of value, $100 of value, and you should feel great about that. But I think, you know, as Dr. Sterling mentioned, a lot of the independent evaluation is to check that, to sort of say, literally, what did you spend the money on, and how can the public assess whether uh, those who gave money got value for it? How do you measure that? And that's something that's a little bit different than in business, where you, you know, what's the, what's the one question, because a lot of you are business majors looking at, what's the one question that you have to answer? If you're going for funding. What problem do you solve? Yeah. And how are you going to make money? What problem do you solve? And how are ultimately you going to make money? So it's tough. You know, um, and that's something, well, nonprofits need financial resources to perform their work. But how are we going to make money? I mean, you have to make it off providing a good or a service to something that has the perceived value to the person buying it. It's a bit of a different uh, mix with nonprofits, but the concept of value for money is still essential to it. Um, how you address that and provide that perception of value is much different, and I think largely unresolved. So I think because you're at UCSB and there's all these breakthrough things like the Unite to Light and all the Nobel Prize winning scientists who are here, um, like the LED technology, which is an amazing innovation for our species. You know, light is a good thing. Um, it, a lot of it, and there's such a huge driver of um, business to, you know, to technology's application in the business setting has been profound. I mean, it's disruptive. It continues to be disruptive in almost every imaginable corner of life. Uh, I think from how we live our lives and we communicate, how we diagnose and treat disease, how we keep in touch with people we care about. I mean, the just data, technology, communications, entertainment, um, it's profoundly different. And, you know, I think nonprofits and humanitarian assistance need and has taken advantage of that, not necessarily to the same degree that all businesses have, but it's certainly something that uh, Direct Relief has experienced. It's been a big part of how we've been able to expand in the last 10 years or so. I thought I'd talk a little bit about that because that's what this program's about. Um, so if you think about a nonprofit, you kind of think about typically the mission. You often only hear about nonprofits when 
when they want your money, right? So you don't really know what they do, except you often know that they need your money because that's why they're sending you something in the mail. Um, direct relief is a little bit different. We're not a heavy, uh, really aggressive fundraiser. We have for a long time decided, let's make sure we're doing it right and consistent with how we were founded by war immigrant businessmen, there's no question any person in business would be looking at how technology can solve their problems. And although nonprofits are business-like, not necessarily commercial enterprises, it's the same for us. So this is just kind of a smattering of the technology that we have adopted and adapted for our work. And it's kind of an impressive array. I think SAP is a a huge enterprise system. It's a heavy system. Some of the biggest businesses in the world use it. We do too, because about uh, nine years ago, we decided the problems that we're trying to solve, it's um, a distribution problem. It's an inventory management problem um, in the realm of health commodities. Markets tend to sort themselves out naturally, right? Um, If there's supply, that's short and demand, that's high, the price goes up, and it kind of is self-leveling. A lot of those same drivers don't exist where there's really no business driver. It's just, it's demand, it's need, but it's not commercially expressed. So I think how do you, first of all, understand what the marketplace is for um, the unmet need for health basics? Market research, which many of you probably study and will go into, has been... Uh, empowered a lot by things like Salesforce and technology that allows you to do market research, to profile your customers' interests and answer that question, at what price point could we sell this and be profitable based on our production or the cost of us to provide that service? SAP and other enterprise systems, Oracle does similar things. How do you run this enterprise? How do you understand the market? How do you line up from your suppliers to your manufacturing to your distribution um, and do it efficiently. And we realized that although we were dealing with the non-commercial demand and really non-commercial supply because we weren't selling it, basically the function was the same. And that the the tools that existed in commerce were directly applicable to what we were trying to solve um, in terms of sizing the demand and meeting it with the supply that we could then you know, try to mobilize through donations and provide to people who needed it. Um, you know, Esri, the GIS, we've worked a lot with UCSB, which has been, I think, one of the inventors of what's now modern GIS in our phones. Esri's one of the main um, leading, the leading platform for geospatial um, everything. We applied that. A lot of its use was for the physical sciences. You know, where are faults and where are different things? And we looked at um, things like a weather event which is often covered as a weather event. I don't know how much of you know what barometric pressure is and when it shifts, if it's good or bad. I, I don't. But in a major event, all you hear about is like the weathermen going insanely excited about these charts. It doesn't mean a lot to most people. It does, for us, it meant there's a weather, major weather events are social events too. They're also major disruptive health events that disproportionately affect poor people who are vulnerable. So... We started to use Esri software to look at answering the question of, where's that? Like, everyone's against poverty, right? Where is it? If you know where something is, it kind of causes you to look at it differently. That issue of obstetric fistula, it is so awful a condition. 
it's about it's deeply compelling that these women are treated like modern lepers after having lost their child. They're abandoned. And they're so so as a humanitarian organization, you know, health organization, there is a strong desire to figure out we should do something. And the simple question was, where is it? That software has helped us. Um, once you start asking the question of where, in addition to what, why, how to solve, it's a very powerful um, focusing factor that we've used consistently and continue to learn from, and it's just one of the applications. And we go through all these things. We happen to be Google's first grantee about 11 years ago when it just started selling advertising. Um, we thought, what an amazing um, opportunity for people to find what they're looking for, right? And unlike, you know, putting, if you have a sofa that you want to sell, um, rather than buying an advertisement in a paper that's going to go to 100,000 people who don't probably want to buy your sofa and you got to pay for its placement, the breakthrough of Google is, well, people can find what they want. <laughs> you only need to pay, if you're an advertiser, for the one who's looking for the thing that you've got to sell. We looked at that as an example of something that is this breakthrough technology that allowed us to connect with people who might be interested in what we're doing. And we had the great good fortune of going up right as Google was starting its advertising business and talking to them the same way we've often talked to healthcare companies. We love what you're doing. We think it has great application to what we're trying to do. And we are not in a position to pay for that service. But uh, because of that, because we're not buying it for you to give it to us, you're not losing a sale. You're just helping us do some good. And they said, okay. So now there's tens or hundreds of thousands of organizations that get a, a grant from Google um, so that allows them to have free advertising, basically, on Google and allow people to find them. And it's one of those examples. For direct relief, it was profound. Millions of people could find us um, without us incurring the cost of trying to reach them through inefficient means uh, to engage them in the work of direct relief. And it's been super powerful, And as of all the other ones. But I think... Um, it's, it's been one of those force multipliers that technology is just great at doing. I think one of the things, you know, the tradition of direct relief is business folks recognize, the, our founders, looking at post-war Europe and sort of saying what they need is available in the world, but they can't pay for it. So their natural inclination using their own money was to go to the healthcare companies when they thought health is a fundamental issue and ask them, you know, if they could help um, address the needs of these people who just were not in a position to pay, purely voluntarily. They were putting their own money in. And if you think about it, big companies, um, if they're successful, operating at scale in the manufacturing sector, their marginal costs when they get to scale are very low. So if you're making 20 gazillion units of anything, the 20 gazillionth and first that follows is the, the number one that follows the scale isn't very expensive. And so they were asking companies to use the scale that they had, the kind of competitive advantage that they've earned in the commercial marketplace to help people because the idea was that no one can do it more efficiently than you. You may not have thought of yourself as a, a way to help these people have access to health, but you are at the, at the lowest cost to anybody because you're operating at scale. And that's what we've embraced, trying to encourage businesses to make available... Uh, without hurting their own business, 
things so other people, their products, goods, or services so people can benefit from them uh, who just aren't in a position to pay. They're not paying customers, but they can benefit from it. And in working with these companies and trying to encourage them, whether it's technology or services like the FedEx logistics services that they provide in kind, it's really been jumping up. Um, and last year, our fiscal year ends in, uh, on June 30th. It was $858 million of contributed goods and services, which was a big jump. Uh, it doubled in the first year. So in terms of a, a business scaling, it's certainly going in the right direction. And um, as they rate charities on uh, revenue, I think Direct Relief has been rated now the number, the ninth largest in the United States, the 1.4 uh, million. Um, in turn, so we get it in and then we turn it out, right? So we don't, we don't ask for it for direct release purposes. We have 63 people working in a warehouse next to the Goleta train station. We don't need a billion dollars. You know, it's, like, it's not for direct relief. It's for the marketplace of partners that we are serving at no charge. I think last, this has been paralleling. There's a little bit of a lag time because we will get in 858, carry over some of the inventory, which is why this number is lower for the last year. But you can see kind of the, the growth that's um, been happening in terms of our business. You know, more revenue, more expense or output, or in our case, humanitarian service going out. And really, the, the new technology has been a huge force multiplier for us. We've become more efficient, not less. We've gone to scale, not in terms of anywhere close to like doubling or tripling or quadrupling our staff. It's basically the same size. Um, but I think the technology, the force multiplying effect of technology, we've seen it um, and are experiencing it and embraced it. And it not only allows you to do more faster, but um, you know, also more precisely, which is a, a, you, know, you usually have pick two or three. Do you want to do more? Do you want to do faster? Do you want to do it precisely? You can't have all three. Technology actually does provide that. And I think as big businesses know that our mass customization for all the things that we're, we're buying and selling and uh, as the big data is churning on all the profiles that are being created about what we buy and look at, I think we're trying to figure out how we can adapt some of those approaches to address these totally unmet needs that are very basic in nature. Not to bore you, but I think you know we have $25 million in income last year, for example. What we do is we have, basically, we get a lot of money. Um, the purple is when a big event like Nepal or Ebola happens. So we're trying to deal with the chronic challenges of people who just on a good day don't have what they need and trying to make sure that we can mobilize and provide the resources so that they can have a chance at a better life. And then something like Nepal happens, um, the big earthquake, and that spurs a lot of money in only for Nepal or for the Ebola outbreak. So I think it, you know, it's a restricted contribution. There's a, uh, you know, it's important that we only use it for that. We account for it separately. But I think the, the income, the cash part, in addition to the $858 million in product revenue, gets a little bit spiky, and that is influenced largely by what capture, captivates the public's attention, um, which certainly last year it was the Nepal earthquakes did that and, and direct relief uh, was visible, very active, and um, able to receive a lot of contributions. So emergency, you know, let me just talk for a minute about emergencies because that's typically, as you, the previous chart showed, when we get kind of a spike of financial support and attention, um, that is a recurring kind of phenomenon for us 
And emergencies are interesting things. They, they spur a lot of action, a lot of uh, charitable contributions. And there's often then great frustration afterwards. People are frustrated the, uh, with the waste. The, client, the people who are affected are frustrated by the, the clunkiness. And, you know, I think we understand that. We've tried to, we've been around that. And, you know, I think this is more Oklahoma, I think the tornadoes where we've been involved. And what we learned is the formula that um, why this happens is because if you think about what happens in an emergency, things are plowing along in equilibrium, and there's this massive disrupting event that at this simultaneously creates a big demand spike at the same time when the distribution channels are broken and information becomes unavailable. So if you, are trying, if you know that you need to do something at huge scale... <coughs> urgently, and you don't really have a lot of good information to, um, to guide you, what happens? Um, it's a mess. So I think the formula it's, uh, that we've seen is that emergency response equals a rapid reallocation of resources in the world. And based on JMTU, which is typically, I don't know, I just made that up, you know, no idea, but seems like there should be a million units of that needed, so let's just send it to Haiti or Nepal. It's horrible, right? So the, 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 here's, here's kind of how it, um, it happens. There's an event, and as time goes on, there's an urgent need to act now. And the quality of the information, kind of the blue line, the dotted line, is non-existent. <laughs> so that's the gap. Um, and information gets better over time. Um, the farther you get out from the event, you know, things start to come into focus, but the urgency tends to fade and the attention fades. So all the activity that happens in that first period of time when there's all this mobilization of resources and just being flung at it with no information, that's where the problem comes in, and we've certainly seen that. We've looked at technology as a way to basically change the dynamic so that when there is an event, we want a standard of high-quality information about as many places in the world so that we can move uh, fast right at the event where the need, the urgency to act is very high. The need is high, so we've got to go, but you're not going blind. You have a pre-existing base of information that you can pull from having a network of partners that feed in information, having a, you know, a way to you know, use public available data, third-party data, bring it together to look at the places where direct relief has people that we know are vulnerable on a good day. Those are the people who are most vulnerable in emergencies. And so I think technology has certainly allowed us to enhance the existing quality of information. Uh, We are mapping the United States, for example, looking at where vulnerability exists. If you think about who's vulnerable in emergencies, well, everybody to some extent, but usually the people who are most vulnerable in an emergency are the, same, are the people who are the most vulnerable the day before. The very young and the very old. People who are poor. People who are members of ethnic minorities or don't speak the common language. People who don't have access to quality information that they understand, have access to vehicles to, um, you know, to leave. They're the most vulnerable. Substandard housing. Um, low-lying areas in floodplain, you know, we know that. And so there are about 30 factors that influence vulnerability, many of the ones I just mentioned. 
And it's basically a confluence of three things. Demographics, the built environment, and the natural environment. So if you know those three things, a, a gigantic earthquake in the middle of nowhere where there's no people is not a natural disaster. It's just a natural event. If you put it in Port-au-Prince, where you know, one-third of all the people in a country are living, it is a major humanitarian crisis. But it's knowable in advance. And so I think one of the, the things that we can, we've certainly embraced because we've seen the consequence of not having good information on which to act is really using it to um, collect, gather, analyze, and visualize spatially where areas and people are most vulnerable, and that's been profound for direct relief's ability to respond. <laughs> These are just some of the, uh, the, the maps that we've used. It's all uh, available on directrelief.org. There's a whole series of kind of visualizations on maps. And you know, among the things, the, the kits that I showed you that we pre-position hurricane-prone areas, these are, um, we have a map, kind of the hurricane preparedness map at Direct Relief, and it basically, we have cited these pre-positioned materials where there are people in, who are vulnerable based on historic paths of every category three through five hurricane in the last 40 years that we map out. You can turn on the layers and see where they go, and I think it, it, it shows, I think, at least how we at Direct Relief are analyzing a situation. People say, why are you putting stuff there? Well, that's where the hurricanes happen to go, where there are people. And we know um, our clients, our partners, are the institutions that serve the people who are low-income and most vulnerable every day. And it's the same thing, the social vulnerability map. Um, you just can look at places and people, demographics, built environment, natural environment, and make a fairly well-educated guess about who is vulnerable where from what. And it gives you a sense of what you can do about it. So you're not just throwing stuff into a vacuum because there's a crisis and causing a waste of money and clogging up distribution channels. You're targeting it, which is one of the great things that technology brings, the ability to, to target precisely while moving fast and efficiently. Um, I think I just said that. This is a, a case of um, this is an airplane charter about a year and a half ago when the Ebola outbreak happened in West Africa. We had been working with some amazing groups started by um, students, at, uh, actually a student, a protege of Dr. Paul Farmer, who had worked at Partners in Health, a protege of his at um, Harvard Medical School, who had started a program for community health workers in Liberia. He was very well-educated, very dedicated. And, when, uh, and similarly, in Sierra Leone, we were working with the midwifery institution that trains midwives. And we had said, oh, they were one of the groups that we worked with to provide, make sure that every trained midwife in Sierra Leone was properly equipped. When Ebola broke out in both of those countries where it had never been before, we did what we always do, ask the people who know, that we know, who are well-placed, um, what was happening, how we could help. And it was a series of things, one of the, the cautionary measures of business. In that case, the markets froze. Imports and exports froze. People didn't want stuff coming out. No one wanted to send anything in. So the commercial channels froze. Information was kind of sparse coming in. The surveillance and data gathering. So I think it was for us, it was a real hustle as one of the main channels for humanitarian medical. We know this was a health crisis of enormous proportion, and people didn't know what to do. We were able to organize information make a plan, scale it up, and we ended up chartering. We'd never chartered a 747 in 67 years. 
we end up chartering four or five and be bringing in 300 um, tons of material, all specifically requested, that had been ordered online from people that we knew personally and all distributed in a way that we could make sense of, only because the technology and the foresight was there. And I think that, actually, a lot of it wasn't drugs, so the value of what we were sending were, wasn't high. Gloves and gowns and things like that, basic medications, but... Um, it was really important to kind of bolster the fragile system that was there at a moment of crisis. And it was still uh, kind of a tragedy, and we're still working to try to make sure that people don't forget about those countries that were digging out of some difficult circumstances and directly for still working with them. The technology allows scale, kind of precision, speed, and coordination. I think everything that we do... Uh, as a nonprofit, is published on our website. It updates every five minutes. People want to know what happened to my stuff. What are you doing with my money, my material from my company? We put everything online, and it, it refreshes every five minutes. So you can literally see what went where, for whom, and, and then turn, again, on a map that you can turn on different layers to see why the surrounding circumstances. We think that is essential to rekindle and continue to instill confidence and trust in the people who support us. There's no legislative reason direct relief has to exist. It's completely voluntary on everyone's part. It, it only exists like any business if you can retain the trust of the people who are working with you. And increasingly in a skeptical society, um, for good reason often, you know, information is very powerful. Visual information is even better. Data is sort of king, but it can kind of bury you. So making sense of it is something that is, I think, for any business, whether it's in just internal or certainly a public-facing business that's a, you know, focused on consumers, has to kind of keep abreast and maintain the trust and confidence. And uh, although, we're, again, we're not a commercial business, that many of the same drivers that um, we confront and see have been empowered by technology, and it's helped us. You know, we think it'll be a billion-dollar company with 63 people working in a warehouse next to the Glita train station. So we've certainly seen the, um, the benefit of it. Um, just some quickly, we're the, you know, the uh, only nonprofit organization that is uh, accredited to distribute prescription drugs in all 50 states. Direct Relief has the same accreditation of CVS, Rade Aid, Target, the major commercial prescription drug distributors. It's, a ba- it's really hard in a federal system to get licensed as a pharmacy distributor in all 50 states. And it's a stupid business decision to do it for people who will not pay you anything, right? So we don't have a lot of competition for doing this for people who can't pay. But again, for humanitarian purposes, we want to do things at the highest standards possible, as well as it's done in business for people who aren't benefiting from the business drivers, because they're consumers. They can't pay for it. Um, And because of that, these verified accredited wholesale distributors, it's a designation that goes to a facility. And only those facilities have permission to distribute prescription medications nationwide in all 50 states. There are about 560 such facilities in this country to serve the 320 million of us who live here. There is one that is VAUD accredited, um, and that would be the warehouse next to the train tracks adjacent to the Glita train station, that's direct relief, um, to maintain that as kind of a, just like the same licensing, no lesser standard. We want to be treated just like a commercial enterprise because we don't think just because someone's poor they should ever satisfy for something that 
I wouldn't be comfortable giving to my own children, taking myself, or encouraging anyone else to take. It's commercial to the highest commercial standards. Just a few pictures. I think some of the folks that, again, this is a pack we deployed. It was tested in a lot of places and started here. Some of the pictures that, um, you know, ultimately I talked a lot about numbers and philosophy, but it's a humanitarian venture that is, um, at the end of the day, is really just trying to address that chronically vexing concern that even though it's 2016, um, we've done so much, there's still about a billion people who face challenges that are um, tragically, they're tragic, they, they get sicker, they stay sicker longer, they die earlier than we will living here, and virtually all of those problems can be solved if people care enough and dig in, and we engage the best minds, the best tools, and the best things that we've developed over the past 50 years Absolutely, we can solve them. So, thank you. That's it. Thanks, thank you. Very inspiring. So, you're running a large organization, one that's received a lot of accolades. Uh, we've all been studying mostly these, these companies and these for-profit companies. Could you tell the students, maybe share a couple of differences of... W- what the differences and the challenges are that you face running a, an NGO nonprofit versus maybe a for-profit organization? Yeah, I think you know there's the clientele is a little bit different, right? I mean, you're, if you're in, a, in a business, you're selling someone who's the, either the consumer, uh, they're making the judgment about the um, the value proposition of whatever you're selling, whatever good or service you're selling. Um, and in nonprofits, often the, the service, the buyer is. You know, the funder is not the person benefiting from it. You know, it's a so that that that's a pretty profound difference, I think. But you know, I think we've gotten a much more lift. I think one of the it's easy to see the differences, like nonprofit, for profit. You know, it's like the measures are different, right? You are a good business if you make money, right? If you're if you're in, you could have an amazing business that uh, has an amazing product or service. And if it doesn't make money, it's not going to be a good business for long, right? That's just the nature of the marketplace. Um, I think nonprofits, you know, they need to be financed over time, but it's not that, you know, it's not the fierceness, the competitiveness. So um, I think there's some, the differences relate, I think, to purpose. Mm -hmm. The differences are identical with respect to function. And I think that, I'll try to explain that because I've seen it in so at a, at a functional level, direct relief performs the same, many of the same, fun, actually these exact same functions as Cardinal Health, which is a medical dis- distributor. One of those 560, they work with many of the healthcare suppliers. They're fully licensed. They have a, a massive distribution network for healthcare commodities. And so when we look at what we're doing, and they're, they're a for-profit business, so the pricing and the every you know investment and capital investment and their price structure has to, to work. As a, in, it's a public company as well. And so it's easy to see that, well, Direct Relief is doing it for people who don't pay, and, which is easy. The breakthrough is that, is that at a functional level to recognize that the functions we're performing are exactly the same. So if we're doing it, we should do it as, as well as Cardinal Health or McKesson or these other big groups are doing it. I think some of the confusion that's come up in, in, um, in nonprofits is that we think of the purpose. You know, we're doing this righteous work. So who cares about accounting? Man, that seems boring. 
and which is a stupid proposition, right? Um, someone, when I was at the Peace Corps, told me when I was chief operating officer, "Hey, man, I didn't come here uh, to be a bean counter." And I looked at this fine person. I said, "You realize if you count beans properly, more people will eat." You do realize the stupidity of what you've just said. And he said, you know, whatever. So the sense of, like, the purpose was so important, who's going to worry about the functional performance? I think direct relief, we've really tried to say, forget about the purpose, because that can almost blind you and give you the sense of anything you do is good enough because your belief system is strong. That's dangerous. So what we've looked is, like, forget about the purpose. We know why we're doing it. Are we doing it well when it comes to accounting inventory management, distribution, logistics. Are we good at what we're doing? That's kind of the business we're in. And if we're not good at it, how dare we ask people to part with their money and help us do a bad job just because the cause is righteous? And I think that insight, really, that I think goes back to our founders as business folks, has been a really strong driver and encouragement to do not to hide behind the gauzy goodwill or tragedy. That's dangerous, I think to really, if it's that important, you know, um, it's important to do it well and as well as it can be done. And we have found that um, the, the partnerships that we forged with businesses have been critically important. I mean, we were just at the Super Bowl um, roll-up things when FedEx announced its big FedEx Cares program. And it was a, a panel with, uh, with Eli Manning and myself and someone from the NFL, which is like, um, very rare, and I thought it was really cool. And uh, no one cared what I said, but they wanted to ask about Peyton a lot because it was the last game. But the point was, uh, FedEx was announcing that what its contribution to humanitarian and its corporate social responsibility effort was using its logistics talent to help solve some of these problems that are kind of inherently deep and vexing that screw up all the emergency responses. They get it. So it was great for us. So... Direct Relief gets all these accolades. Like, that was amazing what you did after Nepal. You brought in, you know, 30 or 60 tons of material before other folks could get off the dime. It's like, well, FedEx actually did that Mm -hmm. with us. That was their contribution. And it was amazing because they wanted to do it. Their employees wanted to do that. They knew that that was a contribution to this event. And we just see the opportunities for business, all the software companies, um, to engage the business realities. They have to make money. They have to satisfy their shareholders. They have to pay off their venture funders. They have to prove profitability and scale and growth over time. But they are still people who work there. They see the talent that's being drawn into the corporate sector and the entrepreneurial spirit. And I think it's scary to me when people say, why do you work with companies? And to think, consider if we don't. Mm. They're solving. That's where the, the talent, the resources, the investment, the energy is. The purpose is different, but that it, you know it's not that far off. And to encourage their participation um, in, in some of these humanitarian efforts for us has been really powerful. And we've learned. I, I went to law school, not business school, um, but we won the Peter F. Drucker Award for nonprofit innovation for something that we didn't even think was that innovative because business had been doing it for mm-hmm. years, mm-hmm. and it was really applying commercial technology for non-commercial purposes. And that was the Peter F. Drucker Institute, so that was um, a really nice example of, I think, sometimes the false distinction between people who want to go to work for a commercial company or a nonprofit company. They're different in character, they're different in purpose, but the functions are often identical. Mm-hmm. I thought of another interesting differentiation. 
typically in a for-profit company, the marketing department, the CMO, they just really need to let a target audience know, one target audience know about their product. With you, you've got a market to donors, you've got a market to volunteers, you've got a market to companies you want to partner with, you've got a market to lobbyists and government officials, you've got a market to communities to know to come to you. So instead of the CMO doing this, they've got to hit a lot of different areas. So that's a lot of work. So hats off to that. Yeah, I'm not sure how well we do it, but we, we give it the old college try. We have a, a huge communications marketing department. Um, it's sitting in the front row. His name is Tony. Raise your hand, Tony. There's the, uh, the genius behind the director league <laughs> marketing, and I think you've said it well, to connect. We don't think there's any natural predators. or No one's really against what we do, but there's a lot of competition for people's attention these days. Mm-hmm. You know it. Every time you log on to anything, there's someone who's said, hey, do you still think about those shoes because you looked at them last year or that, that T-shirt's now in the new style? I mean, it's, it's amazing, and it's constant. So for a nonprofit to pierce the consciousness of anyone is, mm-hmm. is an amazing challenge, particularly given the increasing profiling and preference uh, preferences that you know, big data can tell us consumers have. Nonprofits are way behind on that. Um, thank you so much for coming to speak with us today. Um, from the Direct Relief website, I learned that Direct Relief is active in all 50 states and also 70 countries. As president and CEO, what steps do you take to ensure that your staff members and volunteers who are doing incredibly who are doing incredible work around the world are aligned and remain aligned with your focus and passion pr- for providing health care to those in need? You know, we've just we've never had a problem um, keeping people passionate. I think they self-select those who want to work for direct relief. I think they, you know, they they you know they're wired that way, and I think that they they have this kind of deep-seated desire. They feel that that's the right place for them, and you don't, you know, they're they're good jobs. We want to be a good employer. We want to make sure that. We can't necessarily pay as much as a financial institution, but we definitely don't want to lose any employee who can go to another nonprofit and make more money. So we're a good employer. We benchmark just like a business would, mm-hmm. you know, to where it's a competition for talent. But I think that great intangible, you know, we, we talked about it, like what makes you a good entrepreneur when you're getting started, I think it's the same basic ingredient that, that with maybe some variation that makes you a good employee, any company. You know, I think to make sure that you could ask me that question um, if I was running a bank or a restaurant. You want people who seem to understand what you're trying to do, and there's a, a mission, purp- I mean, it's a purposeful career path, and make sure that, um, you know, I don't know that I can keep them aligned. I think I can try to be as supportive as I possibly can. My deficiency sometimes is like forgetting to say thank you because they do work extremely hard. Um, and sometimes you forget, of course you should work, you should work harder. We're fortunate. This is why we're doing it. But I think it's, it's great to see that um, how much those kind of other ingredients, I think the compensation is important in financial for obvious reasons. We, we're in Santa Barbara. But I think to make sure that they appreciate the people who work in the warehouse are every bit as critical to everything we do, it's more critical than, than you know, the blabbermouth CEO is. 
that's um, and and I think it's real. And so to, for us to connect that reality that we're part of a distribution mechanism that's serving people who are not served in, in 2016 and suffer from dumb stuff that we don't. And to make sure that all of us, have, a, including everyone who gives us a penny or an hour of their time, it's, I deserve no more feeling of goodwill than they do. I'm very sensitive that the only reason I am employed and we're able to do anything is because people work, contribute, and um, and care enough to to spend their time or money, so I think if we rem- if I remember to say that we I think our excellent communications director Tony who's here, part of that is just making sure that we share the reality of what's going on, both good and bad, and that um, I think uh, as Dr. Sterling said, the communications you know marketing sometimes it's in business it's like eh. It's also called demand generation, right? It's like, let's cause people to want to pay, pay more, right? I think we don't have that problem. But I think to remind us that this is an important thing that's serving people who are, were born, shared the same birthday we did, they just happen to be living in a poor country, that they're going to die from something we'll never have to worry about. It's an amazing thing to devote your, your life to. Um, so I think if we just remember to share that, communicate it, in, in a way that makes sense to folks. We don't have to do a whole lot to keep that motivation up. Does that yep. make sense? Yeah, okay. Good question. Thank you. Thanks Thank you. so much for joining yeah. us. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.